Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, October the 14th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, October the 17th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 128th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. Enjoy. Okay, welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Today is Friday, October the 14th, 2022. And this show will be rebroadcast in its entirety on Monday, October the 17th, 2022. We have the great pleasure and privilege of having Scott Ritter returning to Bringing Light into Darkness. Before I formally introduce our guest, first let me just welcome you, Scott, back to Bringing Light into Darkness, and thank you for making time this early in the morning. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I just had a few words to share before we jumped into the current issues in in the Ukraine-Russia-NATO theater. Exceptionalism means that the rules that apply to the rest of the world in the form of international law, do not apply to the United States if we decide they do not. If we decide they get in the way of our raw geopolitical economic interests, then we have traditionally circumvented them. We obey international law if it suits our needs, and we at times ignore international law if they get in the way of our foreign policy objectives. Instead, we make up the rules as we go along and create language to falsely justify it, such as a rules-based order that Blinken and the neocons, both Republican and Democratic, constantly verbalize to essentially ignore international law when it gets in the way of U.S. foreign policy interests. And U.S. foreign policy interests are largely driven by a deep state, if you will, people that are really not elected, but seem to be behind the scenes from one administration to another. One such example is Victoria Nuland, who currently is the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs in the State Department for Joe Biden. That was after six years of serving in the Department of State for President Obama. In an egregious but typical violation of the sovereignty of another nation, Victoria Nuland was notoriously caught on tape planning post-coup placements of Ukrainian personnel 
She also served as U.S. Ambassador to NATO under George Bush, a Republican, for three years. And the additional point to be made about the deep state and the foreign policy it generates is that this deep state serves that economic interest, or is at least driven by the wealthiest one-tenth of one percent or so as a general rule. But when you are the sole economic power, the sole economic superpower that the United States became following the end of the Cold War with the dissolution of the USSR in 1991, your economic might can allow arm twisting behind the scenes that drives this rules-based order, rules that we can make up as we go along. Because of our economic and military strength, you better follow them because if you don't, you may become in the line of fire, so to speak. In other words, we are nothing less than a bully at times in the international world theater. Therefore, arguments such as what would we do if Mexico or Canada wanted to join up with Russia or China and place nuclear offensive weapons capability within just a couple of hundred miles of our borders, such arguments seem to have validity, but really don't have validity because rational logic and right over wrong is not what drives a rules-based order. So behind these reasonably sounding words, it is might is right and do what we say or we're going to kick your butt, so to speak. This largely explains why despite our taxpayer monies supporting military might and sanctions that have killed a million or more Iraqis this century, uh, 750,000 Syrians, Lord knows how many Afghanis and Libyans, a million Yemenis have died since 2015 in the U.S.-backed Saudi-led atrocities there. And the list just for this century alone goes on and on. And there's no accountability because no one dares calls us out or they are next on the list. But Russia did call us out. They opposed us in Syria as an ally of, of Syria. And they are arguably asserting their national security existential interests in the Ukraine and pushing back against this U.S.-led NATO interests that arguably provoke this current crisis, despite the fact that we are convinced it is a Russian unprovoked aggression. But might by itself is insufficient. It must be complemented by media management, informational control, in which real history and real facts on the ground are made oblivious to the American public so that they will not oppose our government foreign policies. In other words, U.S. foreign policy does not have to be right. It just needs to persuade the U.S. public it's right and reasonable. And although our policies in Ukraine are wrong and they are brutally losing that war through the strength of informational control, this propaganda war is being decisively fought in such a way that there is not a clear victor at this point. And tonight we have Scott Ritter to help deconstruct that propaganda war. Who's winning? Was this an unprovoked war of aggression by Russia? You know, are the Russians or the Ukrainians following rules of engagement that protect or endanger civilians? Who is heightening the threat of nuclear war? And so, Scott, with that being said, again, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. And let me just share very briefly that Scott Ritter was a weapons inspector in Iraq. He warned us with great accuracy when everyone was pointing in the wrong direction about the absence of the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He is a, a writer. He's a lecturer. He was a weapons inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998. He was featured on CNN and NBC television networks until he, I think, started bringing forth a narrative that was unacceptable to this rules-based order we were just talking about. 
Scott was born into a military family in Florida and grew up around the world at different military bases, I presume. He has a very profound understanding of Soviet history. In fact, he got his bachelor's degree in Soviet history and he joined the armed forces, worked in military intelligence in the USSR. And I guess, if I'm not mistaken, left the military service to join the United Nations Special Commission on Weapons Inspection in Iraq. And that's when he, I think, made his greatest imprint. A real patriot speaks truth to power. I really appreciate you returning back to bringing light into darkness, Scott. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. I guess this propaganda war, when you think of the most egregious types of misrepresentations to the American public by our media, by our government, what do you think is the most important indications of that for the American public to reconsider? Well, I think the the most critical thing, let's start with the big picture of that which will destroy us, and that is a nuclear war with Russia. And we're closer today to a nuclear Armageddon with Russia than we have been at any time since 1962 was a a big deal, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I would also say that there were several times in the 1980s where we were on the brink of nuclear annihilation. Those haven't gotten the attention uh, by historians that maybe they rate, but one such instance was in 1983, a military exercise known as Able Archer 83, which was a NATO command post exercise, ostensibly testing the ability of NATO to wage a nuclear conflict against an invading Soviet army. Able Archer 83 came on the heels of a major exercise, Autumn Forge, part of the Reforger series of exercises, the return of forces to Germany what Reforger stands for. We basically at the time had around 250, 300,000 troops stationed in Germany, West Germany, facing off against about 400,000 to a half a million Soviet forces deployed in East Germany and in Czechoslovakia. In the case of an attack by the Soviet Union, we had prepositioned equipment in Germany sufficient for another 300,000 troops. And every year, sometimes twice a year, we practice flowing these troops back into Germany where they would meet up with this equipment and then rapidly be deployed to the field. The idea was within 10 days of notification, we could get these 300,000 troops into Germany in a position to blunt a Soviet attack and then hopefully launch a counterattack to push them back. We had done the reforger exercise. We had brought in significant troops and they were all combat ready. They, they had their equipment, they were ready. And the Soviets were concerned that having done this, we might launch a preemptive nuclear strike against them that would enable NATO to attack the Soviets and throw them out of uh, East Germany and other Warsaw Pact countries. So they raised their alert status. They put their own nuclear forces on high alert. And we were literally one misunderstanding, one mistake away from a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. I mean, the threat of this was so much so that when Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time, found out about it, uh, he was briefed by the CIA. He turned to them. He said, seriously, did they really think we would launch a preemptive nuclear strike? And when he was told the answer, yes, that's what they thought. It was a, it was one of those come to Jesus moments that led to Ronald Reagan turning away from being this evil empire, cold warrior type person to someone who ended up signing the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1987, beginning a process of nuclear disarmament that actually made Europe 
much safer than it had ever been. Now, we don't have that treaty anymore. Donald Trump withdrew from it. And today we find ourselves in a similar situation where Russia and the United States and NATO are facing off. And NATO is getting ready to hold next week a nuclear exercise where they are practicing using nuclear weapons against a Russian target. And this comes on the heels of the Ukrainian president pleading with NATO to carry out a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia. I mean, the insanity is is unreal. So we live in a very dangerous situation where the fact that we would even consider holding this exercise is propped up by absolute ignorance about Russia, about the Russian leadership. Excuse me, but let me ask you to elaborate while we're on the subject. Now, the false framing of Putin's words in order to present the impression that he was threatening nuclear attacks and that type of thing. Can you uh, refer to his exact words and then the fact that we keep pushing this issue out there about how unacceptable that whole scenario is, but by keeping on repeating it, we're kind of legitimizing it in a certain way and pushing it ourselves. But can you clarify the context of Putin's when he talked about a nuclear response in a defensive manner, what he actually said and how it was interpreted and kind of twisted in the American media? Well, I mean, I think we have to even go back further than simply referring to the words that Putin uttered in February prior to the initiation of this conflict. In 1985, Putin gave an address, I believe in April, where he spoke of the collapse of the Soviet Union representing one of the greatest geopolitical disasters in history. But he said one of, he didn't say the, and that's the the first misrepresentation. Every American so-called Russian expert has misquoted this by saying that Putin called it the, the major geopolitical catastrophe of the last century. Therefore, highlighting this as proof positive that Vladimir Putin wanted to resurrect the Soviet Union. They ignored the fact that what followed him saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the major geopolitical catastrophes was what he said next, because it made tens of millions of Russians overnight homeless, people without a home, people who were now living under new governments that were anti-Russian in nature, and that he is the president of Russia had a duty and responsibility to protect these people, to safeguard these people. And, and if, I, if I could add real quick, what you're referring to is with the dissolution of the USSR in 1991, if you look at the majority population's quality of life disposition in the eastern parts of the newly, quote unquote, liberated states, they just took a complete nosedive, as you said, poverty rates. And and in Russia itself, with power grabs and those types of things, that there was this incredible demise in the majority population's quality of life and such. And in fact, I think that's important because most Americans don't understand that under Putin, the living standards have arguably risen in many ways, maybe not to where they should be based on still the presence of oligarchical presence and that type of stuff, but certainly, relatively speaking, has vastly improved. That old Ronald Reagan, are you better off than you were four years ago scenario. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, first of all, let me just make it just a straight up statement of fact. It's not arguably, relatively. The quality of life in Russia today is 1,000% better than it was at any time in the 1990s. The Russia that Putin inherited 
1999, when he took over the presidency, was a Russia in, that, that was heading towards the abyss. It was a Russia on the verge of total collapse, economic collapse, political collapse in every way, shape or form. And that's solely because of the policies of the United States and the West that not only lied about the expansion of NATO, but worked with a corrupt elements inside Russia, the so-called oligarchs who robbed the Russian people of their natural wealth, enriching themselves to the tune of billions of dollars, which they took out of Russia, put in Western banks. Uh, and the West worked with them, collaborated with them, conspired with them to do this because the goal of the West was not to have a strong, healthy Russia, but rather to see Russia dismembered, to break the Russian Federation down into component parts, uh, to strip away the various nationalities that were part of the Russian Federation, the Chechen. We know that the CIA and uh, NATO worked to import Wahhabist Islamic fundamentalism into Chechnya to create this new Afghanistan uh, designed to rip Russia apart. We know this. Russia knows this. Everybody knows this. We sought to have other nationalities break away, the Bashkirs, the Tatars, the Udmurts. We wanted the Far East to break away, to strip away that mineral wealth. We, we were seeking the destruction, the dissolution of Russia. And we did it openly, brazenly. In 1996, we stole an election reinstalling Boris Yeltsin. We bragged about it. A Time magazine cover bragged about it. We bought an election. You know, everybody complains about Russia allegedly interfering with the 2016 election. There ain't no allegation about what we did in 1996. We done did it. We bragged about it. We stole an election. We interfered with Russian democracy. So that's a reality. And Russia was a devastated nation. Every single measure that you can put up there, bar none, there is not a single single measurement that you can put up there and say, now things were better in the 1990s. They were not better. They are better today because of one man, Vladimir Putin. And the fact that he took Russia out of the ashes and created the nation that exists today is what drives the United States and NATO to confront him, to destroy him, to seek his demise. And that's the reality where we're at. You cannot find one single, and I challenge anybody, you, your listeners, anybody, one single measurement to say, oh, no, things were better in the 1990s. You can't. You won't. It isn't going to happen. Russia is so much better today than it was in the 1990s. And that's solely because of the leadership of Vladimir Putin, which explains hands down what's going on today, because we don't want Vladimir Putin in power. Because Vladimir Putin represents a strong Russia, and we don't want a strong Russia. We want a weakened Russia, and we have been working to weaken Russia ever since Putin came into being. Let me ask you this, and, and I think that's a really important point, and it helps to explain his popularity in the country politically that we don't really get at. But what I wanted you to also address, if you would, NATO has expanded to include almost all the major countries in Eastern Europe, apart from Ukraine and Belarus. And this infringement onto and up to the border of Russia has been complemented by, you know, you just mentioned this upcoming NATO exercise, but the NATO staged one major military exercise on Russia's border after another, leading up to the 22 February invasion by Russia, including 
the very large Defender 2021 exercise in May of 2021, and the Operation Seabreeze in the Black Sea in June, and I think also July of 2021. Can you share with us the actual dimensions and how, if you were a Russian analyst advising the government, how a rational mind might perceive those types of exercises in the context of the geopolitics of of our time? Again, we have to go back because nothing happens in a vacuum. Back in the 1980s, 1990s, we literally had millions of troops facing off against each other with tens of thousands of tanks, tens of thousands of aircraft. And even after the signing of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1987, the implementation of which began in 1988, the lessening of tensions was exacerbated by the presence of these massive military formations. And the decision was made to enter into a a treaty arrangement called the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, where both sides agreed to radically reduce the number of tanks and men and to push them back uh, away from this line of confrontation. And so they did that. We, We implemented the treaty. We started meaningful reductions of conventional forces. The the Russians literally built giant bases where they brought their tanks and stuff to be dismembered and reduced to scrap metal and pushed the rest of their tanks back to a line further away from the line of confrontation. And NATO did the same thing. Was this when you were actually stationed there and observing? Well, my my job was to get rid of the nuclear missiles that that were part of the intermediate nuclear forces. But Mm. this was right at the same time. Yes, the conventional forces in Europe treaty was going on while I was in the military. And uh, I'm fully aware. I know the people who implemented it. Again, I wasn't involved in the CFE. I was involved in the INF. But they're related. You couldn't have a CFE without the INF. The INF treaty came first. And it set the stage for everything that followed. The problem was the INF Treaty and the CFE Treaty were negotiated between the Soviet Union and the United States, back when the United States respected the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia took over, and we didn't respect Russia. And we viewed the all treaties as an inconvenience, you see, because the CFE was supposed to lock in a European security framework that de-emphasized the buildup of forces, recognized a, a buffer. But then we lied to the Soviets when we said, you know, we won't expand one inch further, one inch eastward with NATO. We lied. Why? Because we had no intention of honoring that commitment. We had every intention of exploiting a new geopolitical reality to our advantage. We expanded NATO, taking over the former Warsaw Pact states under the notion that, hey, they want to be a member. Who are we to deny them this opportunity? Ignoring what that does to the geopolitical framework in Europe, expanding NATO when we promised we would never do so, and then expanding it towards the Russian border, all the while ignoring the provisions of the CFE. We brought in three nations, the Baltic republics. And when Russia said, hey, um, you're bringing those in, we need to recalculate CFE algorithms because you've got three new armies right now in NATO and that have to be taken into account. We said, no, 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 no. They weren't part of the CFE negotiations, so they fall outside of that. And Russia went, are you high? You're going to put three NATO nations right on our border, right near St. Petersburg, right near the Kaliningrad enclave, and you're going to tell me that you can do anything you want on those nations because they don't count. You can build their militaries up to whatever you want. No. 
And so the United States destroyed the CFE framework. Uh, we compelled the Russians to withdraw because Russia said, this is a suicide pact. You've turned it into a suicide pact. This is what we did. This is the threat we posed. And in 2008, we sought to bring in Ukraine and Georgia, two former Soviet republics. And the Russians said, this is a red line. I know Michael McFaul, the former ambassador to, uh, to Russia from the United States, has said, oh, the Russians were never really concerned. Really, Michael, why don't you read the memorandum written by your predecessor, William Burns, who in the aftermath of the 2008 decision to bring in uh, Ukraine, wrote a memorandum called Nyet means Nyet, no means no. And he pretty much said straight up, this is a red line for Russia. We know it. The Russians have said so. And Scott, before we go any further, we do need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is a really important history that you're sharing with us, and we will be right back with its completion right after this brief pause. We want to remind you this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. We'll be back with our very special guest, Scott Ritter, in just a moment. Don't touch that dial. 